everybody. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Tony and uh, it's my privilege to open the scriptures together with us this morning. We're going to continue our series uh, as we've been working through in the book of Acts, which we've called Sent. And if you've been with us on this series so far, I hope you've been both encouraged and challenged at the same time. Encouraged by the fact that Jesus is reigning right now in this very moment from the right hand of God, working out his saving purposes in the world through his people, by his spirit and the glorious message of the gospel. I hope you've been encouraged about that, that he hasn't kind of disappeared and gone off somewhere and at some point he's coming back and until that time we kind of just need to get on with it. No, he's with us and he's working out his purpose through us. But also I hope you've been challenged as we've seen that as followers of Jesus, this is to be our life's purpose. To be sent by him to tell others about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit is actually our core business, if you like, as followers of Jesus. To see the gospel advanced in his world and to see people saved by his grace. That's challenging. Because I don't know about you, my default is to live for me. So that's, that's the challenge. Let me invite you this morning then to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, which is where we're up to, and we're going to read the first seven verses from there. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Um, but we're going to read and pray and then dive into it. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 <clears throat> excuse me, through to 7. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed. And laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this gathering that we've been able to enjoy this morning as we've had our hearts and our minds gripped afresh with the beauty of your gospel, of your grace the depth of your love for us, that you would send your son so that he might bear the punishment that we deserve so that we might be right with you and be able to rejoice in you. Father, thank you for this. Father, now as we open your word together and and spend some time unpacking it, would you speak to us? Would you take your word by your spirit and shape us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you have done what is called a SWOT 
analysis. Anybody ever done a SWOT analysis? Yeah, quite a few, quite a few. Okay, well, organisations often use this thing called SWAT. doesn't sound like the most flattering name, does it? sounds like you're maybe going to kill a fly or something, you're going to SWAT something. But um, organisations often use this to get an idea of maybe how they're going and how they can do better. Um, so SWAT simply stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities and Threats. Strengths. Weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So when you do an analysis, you think, well, where are our strengths? Where are our weaknesses? What are the opportunities in front of us? And what are the threats to our effectiveness going forward? So it's a really handy tool to get clarity about how things are tracking and to avoid getting blindsided, in particular, by our weaknesses and by threats. Now, over the last couple of weeks, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we've seen some key threats arise in the life of the church, to the church. We've seen the church come under significant persecution for telling others about Jesus. They were flogged, beaten and ordered to stop speaking in that name. That was a key threat. What did Jesus call them to do? to be witnesses, his witnesses, that is, to tell other people about him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so here comes this threat, stop it. Then last week we saw that the health of the church was threatened by hypocrisy and corruption. A satanically inspired attack happened on the beauty of, and the purity of God's church through two people named Ananias and Sapphira. So we've seen these couple of threats. And this morning we're going to see two more threats in the church in Acts. Two threats, by the way, that can happen in any church and every church ever since this one. Two threats for us to take seriously and to respond to as we follow Jesus together. And the first is this, the threat of dissension. The threat of dissension. You see it there in verse 1. Now in these days when the discipleships, disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Think about it. The church has experienced explosive growth We've seen thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus. Amazing, incredible, uh, explosive growth. And as wonderful as it is, it would have raised significant challenges for them. Uh, How do we minister to all these people would have been one of the questions. How do we mature all these new believers in Christ so that they can flourish in their faith and glorify Jesus in their lives? How do we gather for worship? What are we going to do? How's it going to work? Do we have a congregation there and a congregation there? Do we meet during the week in homes? It seems that that's kind of what they did. They gathered in large groups and during the week they met in homes. How How do we do teaching and breaking of bread? How do we do communion? All sorts of things they would have had to answer and ask and answer. How do we stay on mission? 
How do we not kind of just huddle into a you know, nice kind of religious group and forget that we've been called to be witnesses to the rest of the world? Because, hey, things are going, things are powering along here. We don't need to, you know, we can kind of take the foot off the pedal, can't we? How do we be the new people of God? Now, it would seem in chapter 6 that one of the many challenges arise and it threatens the health, the identity and the witness of the church and so it must be addressed. There's this complaint that happens between two, group of, two groups of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Hellenists, for your information, are people who are Jew by blood but are natives of a Greek-speaking country. So they're Jewish by blood, but they've lived in and they've come from another place. Then there's the Hebrews, who are the real Jews, who are Jewish by blood and Jewish by geography. So it seems that there's, there's this issue of neglect happening to maybe the second-rate widows. Remember, there's no Centrelink in these days. There's no superannuation. If your husband has died, you are incredibly vulnerable as a widow. So the church was very active in caring for widows. Remember, James says in his letter, true religion is to look after orphans and widows and to remain unspotted or unstained from the world. So there's this issue of neglect going on in the distribution of care to these two groups of widows. And it's... it's happening along ethnic or racial lines. It clearly involves favouritism among God's people. And so there's this growing dissension among them. Strangely enough, they'd created this us and them divide. Good thing we never do that, hey? Ever, ever, ever thought how often we do that? It's actually quite frightening. There's us, and then there's them. And it can be around all sorts of things. And I think from here we're going to see that it doesn't really have any place among God's people. There's just us. So there's this growing dissension among them, and the threat is obvious, isn't it? Conflict or dissension in the church. Or is the threat obvious? Is it more than that? Is there something greater at stake here in this issue, this complaint, this dissension that's arisen in the life of the church? And I want to suggest to you that there is. Because their very identity as the people of God is at stake. This complaint is threatening their very identity as the new people of God from every nation gathered to God through Jesus. Have a listen to how Paul describes it in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What what has Abraham got to do with this? 
Well, do you remember the promise that, he, that God made to Abraham? That he would bless him, that he would make his name great, and that through him all the families or all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's what you see through the gospel. In Abraham's key descendant, namely Jesus, who dies for us, bears our sin on the cross, bears the curse of sin for us so that the blessing of God flows to us, all the families of the earth, all the nations are going to experience the blessing of God. Jews, Greeks, even Aussies and everyone else in between. And so this division along racial lines, do you see what it's doing? Do you see it's an actual denial of who they are? It's threatening their very identity as the people of God. And because it's doing that, it's also threatening their witness as the people of God. Because who they are either confirms or denies the message they speak. Because the message they speak is the gospel, which is about the blessing of God, the salvation of God to the nations. And so when they get gathered into a community and they function in a way different to that, their very behaviour, the way they relate to one another, denies the truth of that message. You see the threat? More than just a bit of conflict, right? Quite a bit more than that. So you see, friends, that the good news of Jesus is not just a truth that we are to agree with. It is the ultimate reality that is to be the orientating centre of who we are. It is the ultimate reality we put our hope in and that we are to be shaped by and that we are to bear witness to in word and deed. You cannot separate those two things. You try just do word without any deed. Well, what does James say about that? Faith without works is dead. If you just do deeds without any word, well, people might conclude that you're a nice person. They're not finding anything out about the death and resurrection of Jesus for them. So it's word and deed. So do you see what they do to address the issue in the church? How do they solve this very real threat? Well, look at verse 2 and following. The 12, that is the 12 apostles, uh, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice how they address it? Firstly, by deciding it's not going to be the apostles who solve this ministry problem. That would create other problems, which we'll see later. So they... There is the appointment of others. Notice what we see here is we see gifts among God's people being deployed in the life of the church. Clearly it's an important ministry. They don't, they don't just the apostles just go, don't go, ah, tell them to get over it. Right? Work it out among themselves. No. They actually put a plan in place to address it. 
And note the essential criteria of those that they appoint to this ministry. They didn't just go, oh, you'll do. Huh. Well, you served in another church in that area. Well, yeah, come on, you'll do. No, they said, choose men who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, which I'm guessing you only measure because you can see it in their lives. Right? There's no kind of meter that you can run over someone and go, oh, yeah, full of the spirit and of, yeah, there's wisdom there too. No, it's demonstrated. Right? So they know, they know who Paul means, or sorry, the apostles mean. They go and find them, they bring them to them, they pray for them, they put their hands on them, and they deploy them. And the very real threat is averted. The widows are cared for as sisters in Christ. The identity as the people of God is not only protected, but it's displayed in what happens. And the witness to the reality of Jesus is strengthened. That's the threat of dissension. And it's actually a threat to identity and witness. Now, I don't know how, many, how long many of you have lived around this part of Perth, but if you've lived here for a while, you'll remember in 2011, uh, there was the Kelmscott bushfires. I think it was... 84 or 87 houses were burnt down and lost in that fire. In fact, there were six just in the cul-de-sac uh, which our house kind of runs along. Six houses in that one spot, as well as the house that was on our block before we bought the block and built our house on it. And the main way this happened, interestingly enough, was through embers setting evaporative air cons on fire. I don't know whether you knew that. That was the main way it happened, again and again. And when I first heard that, I thought to myself, "How? Does the aircon doesn't it have water in it? Like you know, surely that couldn't burn the whole house down. Surely you could pretty much put that out with your garden hose. Maybe you could. But how it did it is people left their homes or actually had to leave." And those air conditioners caught on fire. They burnt through their supporting timbers and they fell down into the house. Oh, now I can see how it happened. See, at one point they were an external threat, but then they became an internal, internal threat. And that's when things went down. That's when houses were lost. Friends, external threats often happen to the church. They have done for centuries. And interestingly enough, more often than not, the church actually grows when that happens. Think of the persecution of the church in China, for example, other parts of the world. It's always, however, internal threats that see a church damaged and sometimes destroyed. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've experienced it. And if you have, I'm sorry to hear that. It's not a nice experience. That's why internal threats can't be left to smolder. 
They must be addressed wisely and promptly because too much is at stake. That's why we want to make sure that we know why we're here, that we're united around the good news of Jesus and we don't get kind of all caught up on all sorts of other things. This thread is one of those. It's internal. Now let me ask you this morning, is the thread of dissension quietly undermining the beauty of God's design here? What kind of things are you saying in your conversations with other people? That might be in the complaining bracket. That might be threatening the identity and the witness of the church. It's interesting, isn't it? Because suddenly what we say matters. Do we ever talk to people we've known or have known for years when they come into the church? Sorry, do we only ever talk to people we've known or know for years? Or do we talk to new people? In other words, what do people experience relationally when they come among us? Am I happy just to you know, create an us and them every week by only ever talking to the same people and kind of not, you know, not really overtly, but almost giving anyone I don't know a wide berth. Hopefully not a cold shoulder. Is there an us and them? Oh, we've been here for years. They've only been here for two weeks. I know, there's no us and them. We're all just us. (laughs) Praise God. On the flip side, do you see the opportunity that we have to reflect by our lives the gospel of God's grace? Talked about strengths, weaknesses, opportunities. This is what God has called us to, to put on display the wonder of the difference Jesus makes to human relationships, which people desperately need. And do you see that being on mission for Jesus involves both word and deed? One can't go without the other. So the threat of dissension is deadly and so we need to be shaped by Jesus in this area. The second threat is the threat of distraction. And again, we see that in verses 2 to 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty... But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this thread is not as obvious, is it? Maybe you're still not quite sure what it is. But I want to suggest to you it's equally dangerous or perhaps even more. It's the threat of distraction because it has the potential to threaten the stability and the vitality or the health and the life of the church. And friends, it has again and again and again been used by the evil one to do just that. 
You see it in verse 2 and 4? What's the threat? It is if those whose role it is would give up or neglect the ministry of prayer and the word of God in the life of the church. If they were to get distracted from this primary calling, even by good things, that's the threat. Notice what the apostles say. It would not be right for us to neglect this. So rather than neglect it, they say in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to it. This doesn't mean the other ministry is not important. Verse 3 makes it clear that the ministries to widows is very important to them. If it wasn't, they wouldn't have done anything. However, verse 2 makes it clear that it is important that it is not them. Why? Because they, were, they must not get distracted from their primary calling for the stability and the vitality of the church itself is at stake. For God's people as a whole, the threat is, yes, less obvious, but it's actually deadly to any church. So you see, friends, what this highlights for us? It highlights the priority of the word and prayer for those called to it, the ministry of the word and prayer. And it highlights also the priority of the ministry of the word and prayer for those receiving it. It's not just important that there's some people doing it, it obviously, by implication, says it's really important that everyone receives it. Have a look at these verse. You remember these, this verse from a few weeks ago? Remember the initial explosive growth of the church? Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 people are saved. What do they do? Well, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayers. That highlights it again for us, doesn't it? The priority of the ministry of the word and prayer to those who are called to it and the priority of the ministry of the word and prayer for those receiving it. And this shouldn't surprise us. Think about it with me for a minute. How did they become a church in the first place? Peter proclaimed the word of God, the message of Jesus, prayerfully and powerfully, and they repented and believed, and there's a church. Right? It's what brought the church to life. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. How did they enter this new community of people? Well, they were brought to one another as well as to God, and so there's this new community. How did you become a Christian? Probably because someone spoke the word of God to you. Someone spoke the message of Jesus to you. Maybe your friend, your colleague, your parents. I don't know. A pastor even, perhaps. Right? How, how did they become a church in the first place? Well, by the word of God. How do they grow in maturity and faithfulness to Jesus? How's that going to happen? 
How do they understand their identity? Where are they going to find out about that? So that they can joyfully live it out. How do they understand that they've got gifts in the first place and what they're for? Through the apostles' teaching, most likely, through the word of God and prayer. How do they grow in their love for the lost and become competent, to some extent at least, in their witness to people who don't know Jesus? How do you get better at that? Through understanding the message of Jesus more clearly, learning how to communicate it, praying that you might have opportunity. Oh, there's the ministry of the word and prayer again. Where does the power come from for bold, effective living and speaking for Jesus? It comes through confidence in the gospel, prayer for help and so on. How do they keep from being distracted from the word of God and prayer? By seeing its importance through the very word of God and prayer. So do you see what would happen if those called to it gave up on it or neglected it? The very means by which Jesus brings his church life and stability would cease or at least kind of die down. This, friends, is the threat of distraction. Subtle. On the one hand, because you can be distracted by good things, important things, deadly serious, on the other hand. And notice the church seems to be on board with this. Look at verse 5 and 6. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. It's like, amen, brothers. Yep, that sounds like a really good way forward. So they point all these guys, lay hands on them, point them to this ministry, they keep going. And so notice the fruit that happens as a result. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, not decrease, increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So their witness was was, uh, strengthened. By the way they addressed with this issue, they kept proclaiming Jesus. It's a healthy expression of church and how church responds to threats. Threats of dissension, threats of distraction. Wow, even some of the priests, think about that. What were they about? They'd grown up, they'd been trained in the temple. They're like embedded in in Old Testament Judaism, but they must have seen what these people were like and what God was doing among them and heard the message they were proclaimed. And the Spirit worked in their hearts and rescued them. And now they are obedient to the faith. That's phenomenal. Complete change. I don't know know whether it's still on. A show I used to watch a few years ago. Uh, it's called Air Crash Investigations. I don't really know why I used to watch it because I, I was already a bit nervous about flying, if I'm honest, particularly after flying out of Broome around a cyclone. That was enough to, to you know, knock any confidence that you had out of you. But I remember watching this one episode 
uh, of air crash investigations and someone, I don't know whether someone had completely messed up or there was a hole in, one of the, in the main fuel tank. But regardless of what was the cause, the plane basically got in the air, you know, 30,000 feet, whatever it was, and progressively, and, uh, and, but fairly quickly, started to run out of fuel. One by one, they showed the dash where the lights went off to say, engine one, gone. Engine two. Engine three. Oh, the aircon's gone. Now the lights in the cabin are gone. And then, lastly, engine four. And now you're gliding. But you're not a glider. I'm sorry I can't remember what happened at the end of that episode. (laughs) Maybe it's better that I don't. (laughs) But the point is obvious, right? There are all sorts of things that must happen on a plane. Good things, important things, aircon's nice, lights are nice. But most importantly, the engines must keep going. For both the destination to be be realised and for the journey on the way. The ministry of the word and prayer can never be neglected. It must be at the heart of who we are as a church and how we live as God's people. We must be aware and on guard against the threat of distraction because our stability and our vitality is at stake. And I want to say to you, as pastors and elders and so on, and deacons, this is probably a constant temptation for us because there's so many things you can do. And pretty much 99.9% of them are good. But there's some primary things we must do. And so I want to ask you to pray for us that we don't get distracted, not just for our good, but for the good of the church as a whole. don't want our church to be a glider, and it's not. Let me ask you about your own life with the ministry of the word and prayer. I don't mean my, our ministry up the front, but just your own ministry. Have you been distracted from its central place in your life as a follower of Jesus? Perhaps by good things. What about your ministry and your service? Is the word of God and prayer shaping it and shaping you as you do it? How you function in a team, how you reflect the new people of God in a group or in a ministry team? Pretty important. Bible talks about us being all priests in the new people of God, which means we have this incredible access to God better than the Old Testament priests through our great high priest, Jesus. But it also means, like the Old Testament priests, we have a ministry that flows out from us as priests. And part of that is sharing with one another the word of God. 
building one another up in our faith, encouraging one another. That's not just necessarily saying a few nice words here and there. It's actually using Jesus' words. D-groups, growth groups, Mondays for men, Sunday gatherings, your own time at home when you've, which, where you've set aside to open the Bible and read some of it and talk to your good father. Someone said to me the other day, or said I was, I was somewhere where someone said, you need to see this as, as the good word from a good father. I, that just grabbed me real quick. I was like, whoa, love that. Are you growing or are you gliding? Gliding's not a good place. Like I said, I don't know what happened at the end of that episode. Maybe Jesus is calling you to stop gliding today. What about your gifts? Are they being deployed in the life of the body of Jesus? Or is the fact that you're not, they're not, making it harder for the people of God to display who they are as the people of God? Well, in conclusion, we saw this last week. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? So good, isn't it? Confidence in Jesus. He's going to do it. He's going to build his church and nothing's going to stop it, not even the devil himself and all his assistants. But I think we've also seen in Acts it's important what we do as a church. That's not a um, free pass. We've seen it here in this passage here. If it didn't matter what we do, then nothing would have been done. We've seen it again and again in the last few weeks as the church is under fire, as genuine and serious threats come against it and things are addressed. We must prayerfully persevere in telling others about Jesus, asking for boldness to do so because we'll probably face opposition either overtly or covertly to keep our mouths shut. We must deal with sin and hypocrisy that threatens to corrupt God's people, which means admonishing one another, oh, guess what, with the word of God and prayer, and sometimes may even mean church discipline. Thankfully, not very often. We must watch carefully the way we relate to and care for one another, and we must make sure that the word of God, the word of the gospel, the good word from our good Father stays central so that there is vitality or liveliness and stability about us. Yes, Jesus will build his church. And yes, it's important what we do to see Jesus glorified, loved and adored by more and more people. So let's finish where we started. SWAT. I'm just going to do a quick SWAT on us, okay? Do you mind? It shouldn't be too painful. And I'm part of the us. Because remember, there's only us. There's no us and them. There's just us. Okay? Strengths. The power of Christ. 
and his life-giving word and his spirit with others. Weaknesses, our sinful natures that are still with us, though God's spirit is in us. Opportunities to help each other grow, to become more like Jesus and to reach others for him. Threats, many. But for today, dissension and distraction. And the good news of this is this, as we finished, our strengths in Christ tower over every weakness turn our opportunities in realities and defeat every threat that that may come against us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you, Lord, for your church. We thank you that it was your idea, purchased by your son with his own blood, indwelt by your spirit, that we may walk with you in your world for your glory and for the good of others and for our joy. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would not, us, not let us be complacent about the part you've given us to play, but also that you would help us to be increasingly confident that you are building your church and nothing can get in your way. We thank you for the strengths that we have in Christ. We confess and acknowledge our weaknesses. Lord, we we ask that you would show us more clearly the opportunities that are before us and also to be on guard against threats, especially internal ones. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.